Well, today we begin uh, a new teaching series in Advent, and uh, if you are newer, you, you, maybe you don't know this about us, but one of the things we just love to do is we love to take books of the Bible and just go kind of line by line, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. We did the book of Leviticus for most of this year. We did a short little series in the book of Jude, and every once in a while we like to do a more kind of topical-focused one. And so today, we're going to kick off Advent with a teaching series that I asked to be called Sound City Ruins Christmas, but when Arthur made the slide, he specifically said John and Aaron, because we're the only two that are preaching, but we're going to ruin some Christmas carols for you, okay? Uh, uh, Real quickly, before you get too mad, you should know we would like to soften the blow by giving you a free book. Maybe you heard Andrea talking about this last week. This is a short little booklet called Is Christmas Unbelievable? And it's a really helpful little apologetics book. If you haven't gotten one yet, we have some out in the lobby on the little table where the Connect Desk is. We would love you to pick up a copy of this book, and we would love for you to get involved with the Advent Guide that will be up on our website each and every week. It's got readings from the Bible. It's got readings from this book. It's got recommended songs. It's got family activities, things to do with your children, for those of you who are parents. And so I pray that you would take advantage of these opportunities to really focus your heart on Jesus. Look, Buddy the Elf is cool, but Jesus is better. Amen? And so that's why we got the book and the Advent Guide. And uh, so here's the, here's the idea behind this teaching series. We learn a lot through song. Uh, my background is in teaching. My background specifically is in music teaching. My bachelor's degree is in music education. And one thing I know is that songs help things stick. I can recite every president of the United States in order because of a song I learned in fifth grade. I'm not going to do it now. That's, that's it. We'll do, it. We'll, do, we'll do that as a different teaching series next summer. Oh, you know, uh, Aaron ruins uh, the presidents. Uh, but uh, songs help things stick, but there are many popular songs that say things that may or may not actually be uh, true to the scriptures, may or may not actually be in line with what the Bible actually teaches. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of the ground rules for this series when we as an elder team were discussing this. So the first ground rule is no secular songs. We don't need to spend time here on a Sunday morning telling you grandma got run over by a reindeer isn't particularly biblical, okay? That's just a good story, all right? You can just enjoy it for what it is. We don't need to compare it to the Bible, right? So we're not going to do any secular songs. We're not doing Rudolph. We're not doing any of those kinds of things. We're going to stick with the more uh, hymn or carol, you know, religious type of songs. But the second ground rule, and this one's really important, no theological nitpicking. One of the risks of doing a series like this is that we could actually kind of produce a room full of or a church full of people that are like, we're so much smarter than those average, those, those plebs out there listening to their warm 106.9 and just Mariah Carey going on about whatever. Like, wait, look, we're not going to be theologically nitpicky. We want to focus on some of the major themes of Advent and not uh, turn out a bunch of uh, nose-in-the-air theological snobs. Can I get an amen from anybody in the church on that? Okay. And number three, the most important ground rule of all, This will not be a sermon exegeting the lyrics of a song. The sermon will start with a song to help springboard us to the text of Scripture because what you don't need is John or myself uh, telling you, uh, you know, Mary had a little lamb is really about Jesus' birth or anything like that. What you need is the Word of God. Amen? 
I don't know if that was convincing enough. You don't need me to sing. You don't need John to sing. You need the word of God in your life. So we're going to get to the Bible and we're going to to do that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite Ashton to come. She is going to do the scripture reading and then Pastor John is going to come and ruin the first Christmas carol for you this holiday season with love. I'm out of here. Good morning, church. I like that. Luke 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One will be born. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. My name is John Fox. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to be with you this morning. And today. <clears throat> We're going to uh, look at the scriptures, like Aaron said, off of a uh, popular song. And um, who's ready to nitpick? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, yeah, this is really uh, a, a great song, sentimentally, I would say. Um, maybe not necessarily biblically, and so we'll, we'll get into that somewhat. But I uh, actually... I feel quite prepared for this because when I was in junior high, my brother, my oldest brother, he's eight years older than me, took me to a Mark Lowry concert in Houston, downtown Houston. I'm from Houston. And Mark Lowry is the guy who wrote this song, okay? So I feel like I have some authority to, to, uh, to preach this sermon or at least to talk about this. I was there. I was, I was caught up in the moment with Mark Lowry when he sang the song. Nothing like a man singing a song about being a woman to really... <laughs> really grab your attention. Um, So, yeah, this morning, um, you know, as we begin, there's some points. I don't want to sing the song for you, certainly, okay? So I'm going to let you down on that that side if you're looking for that. Um, I just want to give you kind of some uh, points here, and so they should be showing up on the screen, but just so you have in mind what this song is about, uh, there's 12 points, you could say, which are really the, the main questions of the song. The song is all questions, no answers, by the way, okay? So that probably bothers some of you, but you'll get the answers today. Um, and so the, the song goes into a number of questions like, um, you know, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? So already, you know, all the moms start crying, right? Um, <clears throat> Uh, would save our sons and daughters, has come to make you new, will soon deliver you, will give sight to the blind man, will calm the storm with his hand. It's all very rhymy, isn't it? He walked where angels trod, that you kissed the face of God. 
is the Lord of all creation, would one day rule the nations, is heaven's perfect lamb, the child is the great I am. And so I think that gives you a good sense of the, the, the really uh, profundity that he's striking for in this song, right? That this is God incarnate. How much did Mary know? It's a worthy question. It's a worthy question. And um, some people really don't like this song, okay? There's a lot of people out there that really don't like this song. Uh, and in my notes, I give you a link to at least one person who, uh, <laughs> there's a bunch out there. Um, by the way, I don't know if this was intended, Aaron, but for the past week, I've listened to like 15 versions of this song, and it has just been stuck in my head all week long. Um, it's how it's going to be for every one of these things. Um, but uh, at least one person really didn't like the song and then rewrote it with pretty much answers to all the questions. And, uh, and I would say it's, it's not really also biblically accurate as well because it's really more from a Catholic perspective, but uh, elevating Mary to this, this status of divinity almost where uh, the song ends with rather saying the child is the great I am to talk about how Mary, Mary's voice is for the healing of the nations. And so we have some, some contrast on this song, don't we? Some people hear it, they're like, oh, this is wonderful. Maybe, maybe not thinking through some of the implications of what Mary's hearing from the angel. And then other people that say, all of this is just trash. I don't think so. I, I think there's some value in it. And so the main value is really how it drives us to the Bible and to relive and retell and rehear the story of redemption that God is doing. And so uh, before I get any further along, I'd just like to stop and pray and invite you to pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, you'd open our ears to be able to hear your word, to see with some sense of freshness the the wonder and the majesty of the story that you have been telling for thousands and thousands of years. And Father, I ask that that, uh, that message would strike us new and fresh this morning. In your son's name, amen. So, Luke, the Gospel of Luke. When Luke begins his story of the account of Jesus' life, he is a researcher. He's a doctor, okay? So Luke does not spare you the details. Uh, He gives you all the details. And that's great because Mark doesn't do that when he talks about Jesus. So um, one of the things that Luke does is he begins his Gospel here that we're focusing on is he begins with talking about uh, details. He, he says that many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So he's saying there's all this prophecy that's been going on for centuries, even thousands of years. And at this point in time, he says, let me get it all. I want all the accounts. I want all the prophecies. I want everything everybody's ever said or written, and I want to put it down, and I want to explain it in the one man, Jesus Christ. And so that is the purpose of Luke's gospel, particularly to a Gentile mind, which is good for us. And so um, as he's presenting this story of Christ, he's going to talk about the, the promise given to Mary from the angel Gabriel. And as he's talking about this promise, we'll see that Mary knew the story of redemption. And so that's the main point for this morning that I really just want to 
harp on all Sunday morning. That is that Mary knew the story of redemption, and so should we. She knew so much, and so should we. And the three headings we'll take it under is, in turn, the son of the promise, the son of David, and the son of God. And so we see, as Luke begins, in his first section here with the angel, that in the sixth month, the angel, Gabriel, was sent to God, sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, which, if you're reading the story, makes zero sense. Nobody wanted to go to Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. And no surprise, if an angel showed up to you, you would be greatly troubled as well. And so we're just going to stop at this point to reflect on Luke's own investigation. Luke, like I said, he's trying to pull all this material together. And as he does that, he's going to be talking about things that happen way back in the Old Testament. And so this morning, I just want to give you a sense of the story of redemption through these main points. And the first place that we see this, of course, is in Genesis 3.15. This is, if you haven't heard this language before, uh, what theologians often call the Proto-Evangelium. This is the first gospel. Proto, first, Evangelium, the gospel. This is the first time it shows up. And so we read in Genesis 3 that everything was lost. Mankind had lost God's good creation. You see, in in 1 and 2, everything was good. God created everything good. There's no strife. There's no awkward family thanksgivings. There's no brokenness, no hiding, no shame, no cancer, no death. It's all good. But when Adam and Eve fell prey to the serpent, they lost it. And one way you can think about it in Revelation, the way that John does, is they lost the title deed to the earth. They owned it, and they lost it. And so the whole earth, all of creation, is thrown into chaos, and God comes walking, knowing what's happened, and gently and carefully talks to the man and the woman. He says, where are you? Which is, of course, if you have kids, what you do with your kids sometimes, because you know. You know they're behind the door. Uh, I had one of my kids the other night, you know those big tubs of nuts from Costco? 2 a.m. in the morning, in the corner of his bed, chowing down on that <laughs> tub of roasted, honey roasted nuts. What in the world? And then has the audacity to say, water, please, I'm thirsty. <laughs> That's what we're like with God. God knows. And so he comes to the man and the woman, and And then while the serpent came and subverted God's order, instead of man-woman creation, he subverts it and says, you know what? Serpent first, creation first. And God comes and he deals with it the same way. He says, okay, you want to do serpent first? We can do that. Um, And so God says in Genesis 3, so the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any of the livestock. And more than any wild animal, you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. 
Some translations say bruise. And this is what we get in the scriptures as the earliest gospel possible. Right after this, God takes an innocent animal, we don't know what kind, and, and slaughters it. And then he takes the skin from the animal and he covers their nakedness. And God sends them out of the garden. And God's gracious act of not killing them, even though he should have or could have, he says, I will spare you and cover you with somebody else's skin so you don't die. Very much the first gospel for us. And so many church fathers and theologians throughout the centuries have looked back to say, this is it. This is the first time we get a glimpse. And I bring this up in relation to Mary because this is in the background of Mary's cultural context. Mary did not have Netflix. She didn't have all these other mediums of stories. The stories that Mary heard growing up were this. There would be a boy one day to come. And so God's promise is to make everything right in the, in the world that mankind has screwed up. He would send a boy. He would send a promised one. And this promised one would do something. He would crush the head of the serpent. There's a couple of uh, pastors I like. They say this skull-crushing kid. That's what God promised. That one day he would destroy God's great enemy and humiliate him. And so we see that this is a promise given to Adam and Eve. And it's perpetuated throughout time. I don't know if you ever thought about that. However long the earth is, old earth, new earth. This is a a prophecy that had been passed through the generations. But it's really broad, right? Hugely broad. One day some boy, somewhere, somehow will come. And he will make things right. And God, thankfully, in his kindness, provides more clarity as the years go on. And as the years develop, we see that Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, a moon-worshipping pagan. And God says, you, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. And I will bless the world through you. And so we get another hot spot in the history of redemption where we see that in relation to this struggle that's happening between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, now Sarah, who is barren, Abraham's wife, no children, detrimental in those days, has a promise from an angel. You'll have a son, the promised son. And I imagine for Abraham and Sarah at that moment, that triggers these stories. It triggers these prophecies. We've heard this before. The promised one. He would come. And 25 years later, they have Isaac. God is so patient. 25 years later, after he promises. But Isaac, if you know anything about Isaac, is a bit of a coward. He's not the one. And then we see, after Sarah, we have Rebecca, Isaac's wife. And we're going to talk about some family dysfunction, okay? Isaac... And Rachel, or Isaac and Rebecca, they have two kids, Esau and Jacob. Maybe one of these sons. Maybe they're the promised one. And you watch their life and the rest of the patriarchs, and things just fall apart. You've got incest. You've got family intrigue, murders. You've got stealing. You've got all this stuff coming from the promised line. Rebecca has struggles with infertility. Rachel has struggles with infertility and then dies in childbirth. Jacob's wife. 
But then we have these other hot spots in the Old Testament where we think, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the one. We have Hannah in the Old Testament, who is the mother of Samuel, the last judge and the first prophet. And he really serves as the, the link in between David and what came before. And you think, well, maybe Samuel's the one. Because Samuel, an angel shows up to his mom and says, you're barren, but you will conceive. And then he comes, and he's a Levite, and he works in the house of God. But no, it's not Samuel. And then even, even again, we have the wife of Manoah. She doesn't even have a name listed in the text, just the wife of Manoah or the mother of Samson, another judge. Same thing. But all of these are not the promised one. You see, when you work through the Old Testament, if you don't get caught up in Leviticus, thankfully we went through that recently, but all of these stories, they're going somewhere. There's a very broad story that God is writing. And the first thing he says from the beginning is, I will send a boy to fix what you have broken. And before we move on, I think this is just a good point for us to reflect and say, um, God is not incompetent. He's not incompetent. He is so patient. He's so patient. And it's easy for us to reflect on this and say, wow, God's taken way too long. But, but we can't say that with all, also in the same time saying, but I'm so glad that I'm here. Right? If God didn't wait, if he wasn't patient, we wouldn't have heard. God could have ended everything much sooner. So we just need to pause here and reflect that God is patient. And I would say, just as an application point, just wait on God. Whatever it is, we all have things. We're all impatient. We all live in a faster-paced society than we probably like. But God literally took thousands of years to bring about his promise. And I want you to know that what he's doing in your life he has plans for. You can trust him. He's good. So we see that God has promised the son. There's the son of the promise. But that's not enough, obviously. The funnel starts really big. Some boy, somewhere, somehow. And then, through the line of Abraham, we come to David. And this is the next section in Luke that Luke gives us. In verse 30, he says, Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is the next major leap forward in the history of redemption. God comes to David. He sends Samuel to anoint him. And then when David is king, when he's mostly done with his conquests, David says, I know what I want. I'm finally in a position to where I'm not trying to be killed all the time. I can do whatever I want. I have the power. I have the resources. I want to build a house for God. That's the one thing I want. I could die tomorrow. And the God sends Samuel and says, David, you're not the one. You're not the one to build the house. David says, okay, but then God says, but I'll tell you what, I will build you a house, and your house will last 
forever. And then David, of course, falls apart. And this is the exchange. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you, your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So there are promises here to be realized during David's lifetime in relation to his son Solomon. But if you know anything about Old Testament history, this is the apex. This is it. Solomon is as high as it gets, the king of wisdom, the high point of Israel's history. And it all fell apart. It all fell apart because he had a son and he lost it all. So we think, well, David's the one then. Well, wait, David's not the one, but David's son will be the one. No, it's not Solomon. And it's not Solomon's son. And so the kingdom of Israel disintegrates into chaos, just like the fall in Genesis 3. And we're left in the Old Testament with a succession of kings with all kinds of problems until the nation is so conquered and beaten and put into exile that the only thing that they can do is just sing the last part of the book of Psalms where it's just, God lift my head. God lift my head. And this creates an immense cultural pressure in Israel for childbearing, doesn't it? For thousands of years. Now, you may be saying, wait a second, in my biblical chronology class, I remember that on a conservative estimate, we're talking about a 4,000-year span. And I would say, yes, you are correct. That is right. From Adam to Abraham, about 2,000 years. From Abraham to Jesus, about 2,000 years. Yes. So for 4,000 years, this story, this prophecy has been running. Yes. Some people think it may fall into uh, loss during that time, but I think there's two things that really keep it out uh, in, in center. One is struggles with infertility. If women didn't have struggles with infertility, we wouldn't be looking for a promised son. It's a constant reminder. Constant reminder. Also, God's intentional self-revelation here of getting more specific. Like I said, it starts really broad, and now we know by the time of David, it's going to be one of David's sons. So I can imagine that next generation was like, this is it. It's all about to end. And 2,000 or 1,500 more years, you know, crazy. And so this, this building of prophecy, building of the son of the promise for 4,000 years creates an immense amount of pressure, immense amount of pressure. And And so the angel tells Mary that you found favor with God at a time when I think most people had just kind of given up hope. They gave up hope. But God knows what he's doing. And so there's a um, 
just to give you a sense of the anticipation that had been building here, whether it's all the way through the Old Testament or the 400 years silence between the old and the new, there's something really building. And, and just to give you a contemporary view on it, there's a doctor I found uh, by happenstance in Everett who wrote a, a very um, uh, complex article as an MD. You probably don't want to read it. It's kind of fascinating to me. Um, but uh, I think she's Jewish, and this is, the, uh, this is the thrust of the article. It is entitled, The Jewish Female Body in Israeli Reproductive Practice. Okay? So some of you, most of you, I don't think will ever read this article. <laughs> uh, but she wrote it in 2009. She lives in Everett, and she works at a hospital up here. And uh, this is published in a Washington Medical Journal. And so this is kind of a, a local, uh, local resource. And she's doing this work on Israeli reproduction mainly focusing on IVF. And if you don't know what IVF kids, you can ask your parents, okay? Uh, you can ask Pastor Aaron. Um, in vitro fertilization. And, and here's what she says as she interviews somebody, okay? So the first and the last is, is her commentary, and then she's talking with a, a Jewish woman who's grown up with this culture. As she, Cheney, shared with me, she believes that God is using IVF as a means of speeding up the arrival of the Messiah. And they said it's because it's a sign that the Moshiach, Messiah, is coming. So they say, as we get closer to the Moshiach, they knew when we lost the temple that there would be this long gap, then things would start to speed up. And that's what's happening here. That we have to speed up the babies being born. This is God's message. This is God's way of saying, we're bringing you closer. There's a religious aspect to this. And she concludes saying, God uses women's bodies for a purpose that exists outside of the women themselves through reproduction. Women become instruments for a project that resonates for all living things. IVF returns to the earliest of narratives in which God becomes the active partner in reproduction. God now enlists women's physical reproduction as a means of precipitating the Messiah's arrival. Do you get a sense of the cultural weight for a Jewish woman? And Mary, I guarantee, had this. One boy, one day, one of David's sons. Maybe she didn't even know of all the lineage that that Luke or Matthew did. But she knew one of us one day. It's a part of our history. It's a part of our story. So I share this with you because... It, it gives us this sense of where Mary was at. And I just want to pause also and say that if you struggle with infertility or even singleness, be reminded that God offers a name better than sons or daughters. In Isaiah 56, as he's talking to his people, uh, mainly even eunuchs, he says that he will give them an eternal name, an eternal honor. And so this morning, if, if all this talk about marriage just kind of stirs something up in you, where you say, like, oh, I hate this time of year. I hope you can be comforted that God knows the struggle and that he also offers a name better than whatever we can come up with. And um, I didn't really have anywhere else to put this, so it may be a hard, hard transition here, but there's a really funny point in, in this passage as well. And... Uh, 
maybe just to cut the tension a little bit, but as, as the story goes here, this is it. He finally came. The Messiah. That's what Gabriel's telling Mary. He's finally here. Centuries, 4,000 years. And then in the next chapter, they lose him on a vacation. <laughs> and I, I just, I would love to know how that happened. I would also love to know the conversation. You know, was it Joseph's fault? Was he on duty? Maybe that's why he, just, he doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible, you know? I don't know. Maybe it was the cousin, you know? Maybe, maybe it was the uncle, the crazy uncle. I don't know. Lost Jesus. Bad, bad news. So, uh, but God's revelation continues. It's not just the son of the promise. It's not just the son of David. Now we have the son of God. And so the angel says, um, angel and Mary say this. Mary asked the angel, how can this be? Since I have not had sexual relations with a man. Fair question. The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. What a beautiful response to God's command. I'm the Lord's servant. Beautiful response. And so the most amazing thing about this promised son that we see, this son of David that we see, is that he's also God himself. He's also God himself. And everybody in Jesus' day was hoping for what you would say is a political messiah. Somebody who would put Israel back on top from subjugation, would rule the nations. We're we're wanting to go back to Solomon era. This is it, the high point. We want to be on top. And the angel says, in God's providence and good plan, that's not the way to do it. That's not how God has chosen to do it. Rather, God himself has come. Not just a strong leader, not just a strong man, not just somebody to rally the people God himself has come, and he has come to free you, not from political freedom, but freedom from sin and death. Far greater, far better. And I've heard this a number of times used as the two mountains analogy. For anybody in the Old Testament or New Testament, I would say for almost everybody, the the view of Jesus coming as a man was there. That's the first mountain. And if you look at two mountains in front of each other, All you see is one mountain. But if you get the profile and see them side by side, then you see, oh, wait a second. There are two mountains here. And that's how it is with Jesus in the prophecy of the Old Testament spilled into the New, is that when they're looking for somebody, they're looking for the Messiah, the promised one, they're not looking for God. They're looking for a man. And so God comes as a man. Nothing. This was nothing what they expected. God himself. And even John the Baptist had a hard time with this. Why? Because while he's in prison, shortly before he dies, at the hands of Herod, he sends a message through his disciples and says to Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? I thought I was going to get out of jail. This isn't right. 
This is not the way it's supposed to be. And so we see that Jesus' coming as a God shook everybody to their foundations. They had no idea. And you can catch a glimpse of this when Jesus is talking to uh, the Romans as he's talking at his trial, asking them questions. And they're like, oh, this guy. I don't know who this guy is. Never heard someone talk like this before. And so how much did Mary know? I would say Mary knew far more than we thought that she knew. Far more. Besides just the angel coming to her and telling her these things, we don't have time to get into it. It's wonderful. But the comparison of Hannah's praise to the Lord in the Old Testament and Mary's praise to the Lord in her Magnificant, which is just to follow in this chapter, is stunning. The overlap is stunning. She knew so much. She knew this. She knew that the promised one would come. So when she hears the good news, she says, I'm the Lord's servant. This is the time. Why, Why me? Why would it be me? And this is something, even though Mary knew so much of, here's, here's the kicker for us. We know more. We know more. We are in such a privileged condition. Such a great position to be in. Hebrews says it this way, a letter to the Hebrews, the epistle. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature sustaining all things by his powerful word after making purifications for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high so he became superior to the angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs you see jesus is the long awaited messiah and he's god and peter reflecting on this his top disciple would say this concerning this salvation This long story, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Meanwhile, you and I can get up in the morning, make our cup of coffee, and start worrying about all the things that we have to do. What a contrast. Angels. They're hoping, they're longing, they're desiring just, just a little bit more. I would love to just get a little bit more information about this, please. What a beautiful drama God has put together. And so for us, for you, as you hear this story, as you hear the gospel, I would just encourage you to revel in it. Let the wonder of it wash over you. God's story of redemption. And this is a story of redemption that isn't just out there, but it comes to you. And so Jesus' main imperative, his main command in the New Testament is repent and believe. Why? For the kingdom of God 
is in front of you. It's at hand. It's now. And so when you hear the good news, when you hear the story of the gospel, this 4,000-year at least epic of what God has been doing, it's in front of you right now. And if you have never believed, believe. Repent and believe. And if you do believe, take some time. Soak in it. And hopefully when you share it with a family member or you share it with a coworker or a friend, you have a sense of this, this magnitude, the weight of the story that you have. I have something to tell you you've never heard. Or maybe you've heard, but you don't realize it took so many years for you to get this information. It's a great way for you to share the gospel. At that moment, when you share the gospel, it's happening. God is bringing the gospel to somebody. And uh, there's actually, I, I love other forms of literature as well, and there's one that really stands out to me for this, and hopefully it's acceptable to you, but Harry Potter, okay? Um, there's two scenes in Harry Potter that are my favorite, absolute favorite. And the beginning is the last paragraph of the first chapter of the first book. Okay, so you find out that Harry here, uh, his parents have been killed by this rogue, evil, maniacal wizard, and he's uh, away with. Now Harry, as a baby boy, is having to live with his horrible in-laws. Horrible. They'll never appreciate him. They'll never love him. And at the end of that chapter, it says that Harry, that he couldn't know that At this very moment, people meeting in secret all over the country were holding up their glasses and saying in a hushed voice, to Harry Potter, the boy who lived. It chokes me up every time. That's it. This is the story of prophecy here. Story of redemption. Jesus is the boy who lived. He made it through. But even more, there's something at the very end that gets me, and that is... uh, Actually, in the movie, it's not in the books the way it's phrased, but when um, the uh, villain, Voldemort, is there with Harry, and he's about to kill him. Spoiler, sorry. Um, he says something. He looks at him. They lock eyes. And he says, Harry Potter, the boy who lived, come to die. And that would be accurate of Jesus. But it's not totally accurate. It would be more accurate to say, the boy who lived born to die and rise because Jesus came back. And so in this Christmas season, we focus focus always on Jesus' birth, but we need to remember Jesus' return, his resurrection, and the life everlasting. And so this morning, I just want to leave you with one application point. Very simple, very doable. Read the story. Just read the story. This Christmas season... Whether it's this week or next, or maybe it's Christmas Eve for your family, I especially encourage the fathers to circle your family up and do this, to lead in this regard. But just get the family together. Say, we're going to read. We're just going to read the story. Easy way to do that is by reading Luke 1 and 2. And if you're more ambitious and you have older kids that don't have Netflix attention spans, you can read just the whole gospel. Shortest one's Mark, so that might be one to go for But let's just spend some time reading the story this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have given to us. 
all that we are also so incredibly undeserving of. None of us ask to be included in this story of redemption, but in your goodwill, Father, you have either saved us into it, hidden in your Son, or you have brought it to our front door, right in front of our eyes. And Lord, I ask that as we focus on your story and what you've done, we would have a sense of not just who you are, Father, but of how much you love us, the great lengths, like Paul says, the length, depth, breadth, love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you have done this for us, for your glory. God, so we ask that you would give us uh, new eyes to see these ancient truths in beautiful ways. We ask it in your son's name. Amen.